isn't this isn't interesting enough for anybody. This isn't something that'd be a good message, but I want to emphasize that your story doesn't have to be interesting to be important. It's it's not how your story happened, it's who your story happened with. Because when it really comes down to it, it's the relationship that's important, and what makes a relationship important is the people who are in the relationship. So, you know, some of us have very dramatic times of coming to Christ, and other of us have very gradual times, and both are important. You know, it's it's your story, and that's what makes it important to you. So, uh, apologize for the small font size. That's part of the um, part of the technical difficulties. But I'll go ahead and and read this. So this is the older brother from the prodigal son. So now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So here we have the, the older brother that, um, despite living with the father, being under the father's house, being with the father every day, um, still doesn't seem to quite get it. And the question is, how can you be around the Father and still, um, you know, not not really appreciate who He is? How did He not have the relationship where He knew He could always go to His Father? How did He not, um, you know, why was why was this a surprise to Him the way that His Father cared for His younger brother like this? So, uh, to kind of tell a little bit more about my story. So, um, the, the little one in the middle is me. Um, so, I had a very happy childhood growing up and a really great family. And we were also part of like a really good church. So, I had kind of the ideal environment growing up. And even within my family, I was always the, the good kid. Right, so my sister was kind of the rebellious one who would always get in trouble, and I was the one who was always following directions and doing well in school and doing what I was told. So um, later, once I started getting into middle school, uh, I started getting bullied quite a bit at school. So, you know, at the time, uh, I was really short, so I was like the shortest kid in school. I was a little bit chubby, I was super nerdy, and then I was also um, still kind of a late bloomer in, in growing up emotionally. So going into a new school, like over the summer, everybody started 
liking girls and watching music videos and, and doing cool stuff. And I, I was still playing with toys and watching cartoons and um, kind of went into school and suddenly didn't understand why nobody seemed to like me anymore. And just because I was an easy target and that's that age where kids are kind of cruel to each other. So I started kind of internalizing that and thinking, well, you know, this me who I am, it's not good enough anymore. I, I have to make myself into you know, a cooler kid. I have to do everything right. So it kind of created a drive in me to say, oh, well, you know, I have to do everything right. I have to do everything good at school. I have to be cooler and, and have people think that I'm a cool person. And um, so I started actually, um, you know, well, I always did well in school, but I started finding cooler friends who who liked me and I even started like exercising all the time and by the time that I was a freshman and sophomore in high school I actually joined the wrestling team since that was the only sport that I was actually big enough to to be in because there was weight classes and I actually started succeeding a little bit in in athletics and you know for being the the super nerdy kid in school having some athletic success was like you know, it was like the end of a Disney movie where, you know, they have somebody who has, like, the makeover. So, uh, it, it was everything that should have made me happy. But it seemed like no matter how successful I got in all of these things that I, I made for myself, I just felt emptier and emptier. And so, at this point, I was, um, like, maybe 16 or just turned 16. And on the surface, everything looked perfect in my life, but I was just in a really, really dark place and completely depressed, um, like to the point of despairing of life and thinking, you know, this is all that there is. Um, so kind of what happened is the first step is that um, I met a friend in school who was passionate about his faith. Um, now, this whole time, I've been, you know, going to church every Sunday. I knew all the right church answers. I had a supportive family. But um, this guy that I met, he was just very outgoing in his faith and very loving and generous with other people. And all of these things that, that I kept having as goals in my life that were just completely crushing me, he seemed to be just completely lighthearted and not having those problems. And uh, it was kind of offensive to me. And there was even a point where he, before I knew him very well, where he came and talked to me before class and was like, hey, is there anything that I could be praying for you? Just, you know, trying to get to know me and trying to, to be there for someone who was in class with them. And I was like, no. You know, I, I was really offended because I was like, can't you see that I'm a Christian too? You should be asking me to pray for you. You know, that's, and, um, but it, it, like, being around him started making me think, well, maybe I don't have everything together, and maybe I, there is something that I'm missing here. And then shortly after that, I had my Sermon on the Mount experience. So, I was in church, um, you know, the, 
the sermon had started, and so I was kind of letting my mind wander and not paying any attention to what the pastor was saying. Um, and the scripture reading at the beginning of service was out of the Beatitudes. So I started just, you know, reading it and kept reading through the Sermon on the Mount while the sermon was going on. And suddenly it really struck me and hit a chord because here I was with all these standards I had set for myself saying, you know, okay, I'll do these things and that makes me a good person. And here I was reading all of these things where Jesus was taking those standards and basically saying, well, you know, you may think that you're righteous because of this, but actually here's the standard you should be living at. So, you know, I had never murdered anybody, but here Jesus was saying, well, you, if you've, you know, spoken harshly to your brother, then you've murdered in your heart. And it's like, well, actually I've done that quite a bit. And I've never committed adultery on anybody, but here Jesus is saying, well, if you lust over somebody, then you're committing adultery in your heart. And it's like, well, you know, I've done a lot of that too. And so here Jesus is raising the standards for righteousness when I was already struggling to meet it then. And then he says, well, don't worry because don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. And he mixes all of these things where he's raising the standard up impossibly high and then telling us not to worry and to, if we're seeking God, to ask for him and, and seek for him and, you know, knock on the door and it'll be answered. And so, kind of those two things together, it just suddenly something clicked for me and, um, like I felt the Holy Spirit really speak to me, and I didn't really understand um, a lot of what I was reading, but suddenly I had peace in my life for probably the first time in two or three years, and it was suddenly a realization of, oh, there's something real here that I've been missing that I thought I had the whole time, and I never really did. So, kind of since then, um, my spiritual life has basically been repeatedly relearning what I thought I knew and deconstructing what I thought I knew to realize that I actually don't really know much at all. Um, so I think now looking back on it, kind of looking at, well, what happened with me? Why was I so crushed and empty when I thought that I had God in my life? Um, so I've learned that for me, at least, and I suspect for all of mankind, um, we were not made to be separate from God. Um, I know no more. I know now that my own kind of personality. I tend to be a very um, moody person, so I go through lots of highs and lots of lows, um, especially when I'm stressed. And for me, if I don't have a great relationship with God. It's like I don't have oil in my engine. And you may not notice that at the time, but then once you start going under stress, then things start seizing up and you start seeing all the effects of not having that there. And the, the tricky thing is that if you just have God kept at an arm's length, you can tend to think that you have a relationship with God 
when really you don't. I mean, if we look at the older brother, he thought he was living in his father's house, but he doesn't know what's going on. He has to have the servants tell him what's going on, and he can't understand the way that his father treats his own family. So, what is it that we do? Why do we always distance ourselves from God? And, and this is something that I keep finding the tendency in myself to keep God at a distance without realizing that I'm trying to push God away. So, um, I think one reason is that it just feels safer to have God at a distance. So, for me, I've always been, you know, good at school and things have come easily to me. So, it's, it's my tendency to want to try to know God and learn about God the same way that I would read about something from a textbook. Because it's distant and it's safe and I don't have to worry about it hurting me. I don't have to worry about, you know... When, like if I read about the laws of gravity, I don't have to worry about, oh, well, how does this affect me personally? I can be completely objective and dispassionate about it. But, I mean, that's not how God really works. Like, we can't know God without putting some of ourselves out there because that's not how relationships work. And, you know, and, that, and it's not if... Uh, this is more of like how learning God is that you have to put yourself in there, you have to make yourself vulnerable and open yourself up to get to know God better. Um, I think a second reason is, so So this is my daughter Clara, and um, as you can kind of see from this picture, she did not forget dessert. Um, but Clara is really, really good about eating her vegetables. So she really likes to eat broccoli and cauliflower and carrots, and those are some of her favorite foods. And she will just go through like a whole frozen bag of, well, a steamed bag of, <laughs> of vegetables. And so we always try to encourage her to do that and praise her for eating her vegetables because they're good for her, right? Because that's it, it's healthy for her and it's good for her to eat those things. But if Claire were to start gaining an idea of that we're, we're keeping her around because she eats her vegetables so well, I mean, that would be completely ridiculous. You know, it's not as if we have our house is being overrun by broccoli and only Clara is there to, you know, take care of the problem. But yet, this is the same kind of attitude that we have with doing good things with God. Is that we, we tell ourselves that, oh, God needs us to do all these things. And this is what makes us important to God by doing these things. And I, I think we do that because it gives us kind of some power in the relationship. It gives us like an identity to be able to tell ourselves, oh, I'm important because I do these good things, and that's what makes me valuable to God. And we do that without even realizing we do that. Um, you know, the older brother was doing that by, what was he even doing out in the field? His father has servants, but yet he's spending all of his time out working in the field because there's something in his mind that thinks, well, this is why I'm valuable to my father. And when the younger brother came in and, you know, got shown 
love and mercy without having work in, to work in the field, it was scandalous. It was something that offended the older brother because he says, well, here I have been serving you this whole time. This isn't fair. But, you know, if you're a father, the, the last thing, you don't want your relationship with your children to be, well, hey, I've served you faithfully. You want to be that you have a loving relationship with them. But so often we, we try to make our relationship with God be more transactional, saying, well, if I do these things, then, then God will love me, and, and, and that's what makes me worthy in God's eyes. But that's not what God wants. He, you know, these things that we do, these good things that we do, He wants us to do them because they're good for us, not because God needs us to do these things for Him. And then, um, lastly, I think a lot of times we may not believe that we're worthy to be loved. And um, this is such a subtle lie because it hides behind a truth that, you know, we may be trying to accurately look at ourselves and say, well, you know, there's this part of my life that um, needs to be improved. But then the base of that is that we have this lie behind it saying, well, because of this in my life, I'm not worthy of God yet. And that's such an insidious lie. And it's something that I still find myself falling for, that even in this last week I was going back and um, trying to look through old pictures and you know, seeing pictures of that awkward time in my life and realizing that you know, I still needed to forgive myself from that time um, and realize, you know, I was worthy to be loved and I am worthy to be loved and not get hung up thinking, oh, well, my story's not important enough to, to give a talk about. So I just want to, um, if anybody here struggles with this, and I would encourage you to really look into your heart because you may not realize that you struggle with this because you don't say it in these words. You try to have it behind some kind of righteous wording saying, oh, I just want to improve myself. Um, I just want to say this is God speaking to you now that you are worthy to be loved. At your worst, you are absolutely worthy of everything that God wants to give you. And I can tell you that even if you were the only person that Jesus died for, he would do it again at your worst because you are worthy. So um, how do you deal with someone who's an older brother? Because I'm, I'm sure we all know these people in our lives who they, they go through the motions, but they just feel empty of any actual love or kindness or mercy. Um, and I can tell you from being someone who still struggles being an, an older brother is that the most important thing is just to demonstrate love. Just um, demonstrate scandalous love for them because that's what shocked the older brother in the parable is that he saw his father showing scandalous love to his younger brother and that's what made him go to his father and, and finally ask. Um, that's what caused me to finally go to God and ask, what am I missing here? Is seeing somebody show scandalous love. 
and then just be really patient and understanding with them because um, changing the mindset doesn't happen overnight and a lot of these lies that we tell ourselves take a long time to work out. You know, this was almost 20 years ago now that I kind of had this first experience and I'm still working through changing this mindset. So if you are the older brother or you find yourself struggling through this, um, how do we stay close to God? So uh, I wasn't sure as far as timing, but it looks like we do still have some time. So I have a bunch of scriptures here that if anybody wants to pull these up and and read them, then we can kind of go through these because this is my last slide. Um, so uh, anybody want to grab the Luke chapter 11? Okay, Jen. Uh, anyone, Hebrews 4, 16? Herb, uh, Acts 17, uh, Luke, Second Peter, uh, Tim, and then John 16. Okay, Steve. Okay, so first thing that you do is just ask God to be closer to him. So, Janet, if you want to read. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, in my life, I, I thought I had God, but I was completely lacking in the Holy Spirit in my life. But asking for the Holy Spirit is never a prayer that God will refuse. And He is, so, like, there is nothing that He wants to give you more than Himself. Um, so, who had the Hebrews first? So, um, it's our tendency, I think, to kind of be sheepish around God, to want to be distant with Him or kind of want to walk on eggshells, but we're told to be bold and in approaching the throne. God wants us to be familiar with Him. He wants us to, um, like, I'm not finding the right words, he, he, uh, he doesn't want us to be afraid to go and talk to him. So, as, as strange as it sounds that, you know, the, the master of all creation wants us to, you know, just kind of stroll right in like we own the place, we're told to go and um, approach the throne boldly. Um, so, who has the axe? So I know this is maybe kind of a, a stretch, but so the Bereans were 
considered of noble character because when they heard a message, they would go out and seek and question it to see if it was right. Um, and I've found that in my life and in my faith, it's gotten stronger and stronger by not just taking for granted things that I hear, but actually seeking them out to see, well, what did God actually say? What does this actually mean? And deconstructing those things in my faith. And often I've found, even after kind of my initial big deconstructing phase, was that, well, actually, my church at the time really was good, like, they were teaching all the right things. It was just, I was hearing them wrong, and I was believing wrong things and not realizing that I was taking things differently than what the church was teaching. So this isn't so much that, oh, you always have to double-check because, you know, the person preaching might be, you know, telling you things wrong, but even if they're telling you things right, you might still be hearing things wrong. So you should always have an attitude of constantly reevaluating things with the faith. And the good thing with this, and I think I tend to be a naturally skeptical person now, which for me being skeptical gives me hope because I can still be skeptical with things of the faith and then they turn out to be true despite being skeptical. So even though they're they're tried with skepticism, they, they still remain true. So don't worry that you're going to, you know, examine something too closely and be afraid of what you find. I guarantee you that if you examine it more closely, it's going to be even better than you thought you had. Um, so who had the second Peter, Tim? So, uh, I guess what I want to say about that is that for me, when I'm starting to drift away from uh, having a close relationship with God, and it's often so subtle that I don't notice it, often the way that I notice it is by examining my character and seeing, well, am I showing love and kindness to people around me, or am I, you know, always irritable? Am I being generous to people around me or am I being closed-fisted and by allowing yourself to just check these things and examine your character that's what kind of tells you well how close are you remaining with God right now and I think when Paul says that or when Peter says that making your 
salvation secure. It's not in a sense that you're going to lose your salvation if you, if you, uh, you know, stray too far. I think he's trying to emphasize that, hey, these, sometimes these things are really subtle and it's easy to find yourself sitting in a pew every Sunday thinking that you have it when maybe you've never really had it and maybe you, you've just been through the motions. So, you know, test your character. See if you possess these things and then know for sure that, that you have the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't leave these things up to being maybes. Um, and then finally, the uh, John. In that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not saying that I will ask the Father in your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. So Jesus told us that after he leaves, we would pray to the Father in His name, meaning we would pray to the Father as Jesus. So if you ever have any kind of hesitation saying that, oh, you know, God won't listen to me because, you know, I've done all the sin in my life or I've made all these mistakes in my life. When you pray to God, it's as if Jesus is praying to Him. And Jesus was the perfect son. So you are praying to God on Jesus' authority. So he, when you pray, it's, it's as if God is seeing his perfect child ask him for things. And this isn't some kind of loophole that we've found. This is the way that, that God set it up so that we would be able to come to him in prayer. He set it up so that we would be able to come to him as his perfect son as his perfect daughter to pray. So, I guess that's kind of all I have. <laughs> so, I guess if anybody, I guess we still have uh, a few minutes here, so... Uh,